On June 23, 2021, a man drove into the desert and disappeared. Join me, Lee Nix, as we examine one of Arizona's most enduring modern mysteries on A Memory of Malice. Hi loves, it's me, Lee Nix. I'm bringing you this case from a new location this week, my closet. I'm experimenting to see whether there's any improvement in the audio. So let me know in the comments or on my socials if you prefer the sound quality. We have a few content warnings for this case. Discussion of suicide, mental health issues, obsessive and stalking behavior, and racial bias in the media. If any of those are too difficult for you to hear right now, please skip this one. Your well-being is always more important than a true crime episode. With that, let's begin. In August of 2021, one case consumed the media. And I mean consumed. It ate up so much airtime that you couldn't turn the TV on without hearing about it. And that was the Gabby Petito saga. The fact that this one case got so much national attention rightfully aggravated those who couldn't even get the stories of their missing loved ones on the air. For a while, there was a kind of, I don't want to say backlash, a reverberation where the cases of some missing people of color got national attention. And one of those cases lucky enough to get the public eye was the case of missing hydrogeologist Daniel Robinson. This was thanks to a viral tweet by journalist Shayla Davis, who wrote, I'm shaking about the discovery of Gabby Petito's body in Wyoming. While we're watching this case unfold, please take five seconds to read about Daniel Robinson, a geologist who went missing in the desert outside Buckeye three months ago. His father is still looking for him. Suddenly, the media was sharing stories about Robinson. But what really happened to him? I've actually had a wild ride with this case myself. I went into the case without a theory, developed one along the way, and then had my mind completely changed again. Hopefully, all of you will find this case as interesting as I do. But first, who was Daniel Robinson? Daniel Cornelius Robinson, what a cool middle name, was the son of David Robinson II and Melissa Edmonds. I think he might have had two sisters and a brother, but don't quote me on that. I do know that he was close to his family and communicated with them often, especially his siblings. He did really well in school. He was a geologist, after all, and graduated from Charleston College with honors. Afterward, he moved to Arizona. That must have been one hell of a move. South Carolina is literally on the other side of the country from Arizona, and the weather is from one extreme to another. But Daniel's sister, Devisha, also moved out here. The timeline is a little squishy as to whether she moved before or after Daniel, but I know it happened. So at least he wasn't alone. I'm not really sure what Daniel's life was like out here, what his hobbies were, or who the majority of his friends were. Most articles focus only on the fact that he's missing. It's always so frustrating trying to build a picture when the details are so sparse. According to at least one friend, Daniel liked to hike and explore. 
He was social, but trusting. Someone said he could be gullible. He didn't seem to have a lot of friends in Arizona yet, and he might have been a little lonely. Daniel also had a limb difference. It seemed to be congenital, or he was born with it. Basically, his right arm stopped in the middle of his forearm. I'm really only saying this because it's an identifiable characteristic. It really doesn't have much bearing on the story, but it's important for people to know if they're looking for Daniel. Everyone spoken to by the media or police made sure to say that Daniel didn't seem suicidal and had never said or done anything that implied he wanted to die by suicide. So it seems like a bit of a mystery what led to the events of June 23, 2021. On June 23, 2021, Daniel left his desert work site because of rain. A colleague of his named Ken saw him drive west into the desert, and Daniel was never seen again. About a month later, his car was found on its side in a ravine in very suspicious circumstances, but Buckeye PD refused to investigate his death as a homicide. That's the story I got from various trusted sources on the case. I believed it before I got my hands on the police report, buried at the bottom of an article from News Nation. Now I know that very little of that is factual, and, at the very least, it's simplified beyond belief. Let's discuss trusted sources before I move on. I only use information from trusted sources, i.e., those sources that have a record of high factualness. I don't use sources like Reddit, YouTube videos, or other podcasts without giving a warning beforehand. This is both in the interests of accuracy and to avoid accidentally plagiarizing another YouTuber slash podcaster. I'm saying this because there are places on the internet that have more correct info on the case, but it's not being spread by trusted media sources, which is a big problem. So let's discuss what actually happened with Daniel. Before June 23rd arrived, Daniel had begun to act oddly. Various friends and family would later tell police that he was saying and doing bizarre things. For instance, his sister Devisha would recount a time Daniel walked into her apartment, sat for 30 minutes staring without saying a word, and walked out. This behavior was extremely out of character. Nowhere was this more evident than his strange behavior toward Caitlin. Caitlin and a friend were pretty drunk on the evening of June 12, 2021. They made an order through the grocery delivery service Instacart. Daniel was their delivery person, and they invited him inside. Caitlin would later tell police that this was a mistake on her part and that she wouldn't have done it if she hadn't been so inebriated. During the evening, Caitlin and Daniel exchanged phone numbers. This turned out to be another mistake. They exchanged text up to the day before he disappeared. It's a little dry to be reading texts, and I'm sorry, but I feel that this interaction is very relevant to his disappearance. At around 2 a.m. on the 13th, the three must have been partying for a while, I guess, Caitlin sent Daniel a link to a podcast, and Daniel replied casually, Hey. On the 14th, Daniel texted Caitlin at around 7 a.m., Hey, I accidentally left my canopy outside your house. Is it still there? If so, is it okay if I pick it up? 
He added, Also, the podcast was great. The next day, the 15th, Caitlin replied at 1.37 p.m. Yes, you can pick it up whenever. I know, so far, so good, right? Nothing ominous or unusual. So, Daniel replies that evening, Thanks. How do I get there again? I can come now or tomorrow afternoon to grab it. There's no reply from Caitlin until 2 p.m. the following day when she sends this text. Hi, I saw you on the camera. I'm in Flagstaff and will be home later tonight. If you want, I can put it out front by the chairs before I head out for work tomorrow morning. Caitlin would later tell police that she was freaked out by this. Not only had Daniel showed up at her place unannounced when she wasn't home, but she had never given him her address. He either remembered it from when he delivered her order or looked it up on the Instacart app. This made Caitlin uncomfortable. I can see why she would be. I could also see how Daniel would think it was okay for him to show up because she said he could pick it up whenever. It wouldn't be that big a deal for me if it was just this. It gets weird. In answer to Caitlin's text, Daniel sends a red heart emoji. Not what I would have chosen, but I'm not good at social situations. Uh, Is this what you send in those situations? By 10 o'clock that evening, he must have thought better of it, and he sent a text saying, I'm sorry. The next day, another text from Caitlin comes in at 6.30. Please stop showing up unannounced. Now, I can't be sure from the timeline of events, but it's possible that Daniel showed up at her place again. Spoiler, it won't be the last time. Danny replied to this text immediately, and the following text between them came in quick succession. Okay, I won't ever again. Caitlin, thanks, and I'm looking right now and I don't see the canopy in the garage. Daniel, don't worry about it, I already have it. Caitlin, question mark? I'm confused? You're not the only one, Caitlin. Did he break into her garage? Because that's another level of not okay. Daniel replies, I did grab it yesterday. I just wanted to tell you I'm sorry for disappearing the other day. Sad face emoji. He adds, I couldn't stop thinking about you. I don't know why Caitlin didn't report this as harassment. And trust me, Daniel's behavior doesn't change the fact that he's a missing person that needs to be found and that he's a beloved family member. But his behavior with Caitlin was obsessive. We can be nuanced. Multiple things can be true at one time. I also think his behavior is important. A day passed with no contact, and Caitlin might have thought he moved on. However, she received a text from him at noon on the 19th, which was a Saturday, one week since their first contact. It read, Can we hang out? Caitlin replied an hour later, simply saying, I'm not home. Daniel replied, okay. A reasonable enough exchange. Until Daniel texts back a few minutes after midnight, I love you. Daniel's obsession seems to be growing stronger. Daniel did tell a friend he hooked up with a girl, ostensibly Caitlin. But even if they did have sex, there's no reason for him to assume they're in love. Remember, he's known her for a week. And besides the Instacart delivery, the only contact they've had is over text messages. Eight hours after the last text, 
Daniel asks Caitlin, Are you home today? Caitlin, who is definitely done with this shit, makes her feelings clear. Honestly, you showing up at my house unannounced made me extremely uncomfortable. I will not be home today, but I don't see us hanging out anytime soon. He seems to take this well. Okay, but do you have any doubt? Either way, I'll have to be okay with your answer. Caitlin doesn't answer, which seems a pretty clear reply. This should be the end of things, but it's not. The very next day, Daniel texts Caitlin again. How are you feeling? When he doesn't get a reply, he texts again, a few hours later. I'm outside of your place. I'm just going to read you the next texts as they are because they come one after the other in the timeline. Caitlin, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Please stop doing that. I'm not even home. This is not okay. Daniel, I guess it's not. Caitlin, not you guess. I told you it is not okay and to not come to my home unannounced. Daniel, are you okay with me? Caitlin, no. Caitlin, this isn't normal or acceptable. Daniel, what is normal? Caitlin, making plans before showing up at someone's home, and if someone has expressed that you've made them uncomfortable, you need to back off. Daniel, do you hate me? Caitlin, I don't hate you, but please leave me alone. After this conversation, Daniel sends two more texts. One at 8.46 p.m. the same evening that simply says, you're right. And another the afternoon before he disappeared. This text read, The world can get better, but I'll have to take all the time I can or we can, whatever to name it. I'll either see you again or never see you again. Don't ask me what that means because I don't know. Maybe it's a quote from something. I'll either see you again or never see you again. I mean, yeah, that's kind of how life works. Regardless, Daniel's short acquaintance with Caitlin had a significant impact on him. He spoke to many people in his life about being in love, and he'd mentioned her by name to a lot of them. He was also influenced a lot by the podcast he'd listened to. Before anyone asks, I don't know what it was. As far as I know, this was the first time Daniel had behaved in this way towards a woman. It seems really out of character for him, which I think is important. I think we should focus more on the fact that Daniel's behavior was getting so strange before he disappeared. According to the police report, Daniel's co-worker Ken, his father David, his sister Davisha, his friend Antonio, a waitress he knew named Madison, and his friend Roger all noticed him acting differently than usual. Only two of his friends, named Reuben and Luke, didn't report any odd behavior. However, both of them did say he seemed more down and depressed. But before we get into a big discussion about his state of mind, let's follow him through the timeline of the last day he was seen. The first thing most sources get wrong is that Daniel probably visited two work sites that day. According to a bank charge, he stopped at a Shell gas station at 1520 North Verado Way. Apparently, the work site wasn't far from this location. 
he bought $3.18 worth of gas and headed on his way. This is partially confirmed. The investigation officer watched a surveillance video that seemed to show Daniel at the gas station that morning, but the video was apparently filmed on a potato, so he couldn't be absolutely sure. But he was fairly certain that Daniel pulled into the gas station at pump 5 at 7 a.m. and left three minutes later. While at the Verado worksite, metadata recovered from photos on Daniel's phone, later recovered from the Jeep, showed he had taken a couple of pictures of work logs and machinery. Other than this, we don't know what he did at the site. Around 9 a.m., Daniel arrived at the Sun Valley Parkway worksite. His co-worker, Kenneth, would meet him there. They had never worked together before, according to what Kenneth said in the police report. But even as a practical stranger, Kenneth could tell that something was off in Daniel's behavior. There was a bit of rain that morning, but they waited it out. During this time, Kenneth noticed that Daniel was distracted, staring off into the distance. Uh, his shoes were also untied. I didn't know where to fit that in, really. I'm not sure if it's important. Maybe Daniel never tied his shoes. But it was something that Ken noticed, nonetheless. Daniel's conversation was a little weird, too. He kept asking Ken if he wanted to go rest. Did Ken want to rest? Did he want to rest in Phoenix? Confused, Ken thought maybe he was asking about the weather. Maybe he was asking if the weather was going to get too treacherous to continue working. But that didn't seem to be it. Sometime around 9.45 a.m., the times given were a bit widgy. Daniel waved at Ken, walked to his Jeep, and drove away. He drove south, along the same road you'd normally take to get to the site. So, not straight into the desert. Nevertheless, Ken reported Daniel's odd behavior to his, Ken's, supervisor Steve, and got back to work. According to a friend and co-worker of Daniel's, Roger, it's not unusual for employees to leave the work site during the day. They sometimes leave to go to the bathroom or something, and the sites can be pretty far from town, so it can take a little while for them to get back. So Ken didn't really think anything of it until it got to three o'clock and no one had heard from Daniel. Now would probably be a good time to describe the access road that leads to this work site. From the work site, a road led south before coming to an intersection. The road on the east led to Sun Valley Parkway and thus to town. The road on the west led into the desert. When Ken decided to get in his car and follow Daniel's tracks, he came to the intersection and saw that the tire tracks led west, not east. Concerned, he attempted to follow Daniel's marks further, but lost them. At this point, Daniel's father, David, was contacted, and he reported his son missing. Luckily, Buckeye police realized how dangerous this situation was and immediately filed a missing persons report. But beyond that, there really wasn't much of a sense of urgency. There's a real, understandable frustration from Daniel's family in this case. If there had been a large-scale search organized immediately, Daniel might have been found. The first aerial search of the area wasn't done until the 25th, 
two days after Daniel's disappearance. That's just not good enough when it comes to the desert. On the first day of the investigation, Officer Cruz did a cursory search of the area where Daniel disappeared, but was hampered by his vehicle not being appropriate for the terrain. He also spoke to some witnesses. I won't go over each and every witness, because that's boring for you and me. I'll only bring something up if they have something to add. Another officer, Officer Haley, took over the next day. According to one article I read, Buckeye PD only has eight officers, and it does seem like all of them were on this case at one time or another. Anyway, Haley spoke to witnesses, too. He tried fruitlessly to find Daniel via his cell phone signal. He also attempted to locate Daniel through the Uconnect system in his car. Uconnect appears to be a system like OnStar. Haley had to set up an account for the Uconnect system. It appears that Daniel never activated it. But when it was set up, the location data it emailed him was unhelpful, to say the least. The GPS location was 0.0 slash 0.0, and the course information was null degrees at null kilometers per hour. So at least we know he was going nowhere fast. The next day, a Uconnect operator explained that even if the car's engine was off, the system should be able to locate it. There were three explanations for why his car couldn't be found. One, that his car had been tampered with. Two, that the Uconnect software in the vehicle wasn't properly updated. Or, three, that the vehicle's battery was dead. Either way, the system couldn't help them locate Daniel. This was also the day that a helicopter search was done for Daniel. This was all thanks to his aunt. The superiors at the precinct had initially denied requests for a helicopter search. If Daniel's aunt hadn't called in with her concerns, which I'm pretty sure is code for giving the boss a stern talking to, this search never would have happened. However, no sign of Daniel was seen. Later, the report mentioned that a search was done by officers on 4x4s over multiple days. But there's only one sentence mentioning it so I have no idea what date this happened on. Which is a bit weird. Officers are supposed to report things like that. A detective named Biffin was assigned this case next. He was the first person to enter Daniel's apartment that I'm aware of, on July 6th. Nothing in Daniel's home looked out of place. The common areas were tidy, though his room was a bit of a mess. His valuables were still there. The only thing the detective noted was the weed blunts left throughout the apartment. Biffin organized a couple more searches for Daniel. He and another detective searched themselves, but he also got the Civil Air Patrol to do some more aerial searches. Biffin also handed out flyers to local pilots so they knew what to look for. Honestly, I don't envy this job. Searching the desert is a pain in the ass, especially in the summer. Aerial and vehicle searches are hampered by vegetation. Foot searches allow you to search more closely, but they're slow, subject to terrain, and can be deadly. There are hills, ravines, literal mountains, defunct mines, covered wells, and dangerous animals in the Sonoran Desert. In addition to the saguaro cactus you're probably imagining, there's Palo Verde, 
desert willows, cat claws, ocotillo, yucca, and mesquite. The desert is full of life, and a lot of it is inhospitable to humans. So it's not surprising that they missed Daniel's Jeep, only four miles southwest of the work site. The Jeep was lying on its passenger side in a ravine. A rancher had found it while collecting his cattle and called the police. This is verbatim from the report. The vehicle had significant damage and appeared to have had a front impact with the dirt and rolled before resting on the passenger side. One piece of the Jeep's black removable roof was on the ground, partially wedged under the front of the Jeep. The driver's front window was shattered, and I located glass on the ground consistent with the Jeep rolling one time. There was also substantial damage to the lower front end and damage to the top of the windshield and roof. So, the Jeep was heavily damaged, including the roof of the car. I'm only pointing this out because it is a bone of contention for those who think this case is foul play. But we'll get into the specifics of that theory a little later. All the airbags had been deployed in the car, but it looked like whoever was in the car had survived the crash, because there was no blood and the driver's seatbelt had been unbuckled, but appeared to have been worn during the impact. If you've ever been in a car that had to jolt to a stop, you might have experienced your seatbelt locking into place around you. That's a safety feature to give you extra protection in a crash. Strewn around the car was a pair of jeans with a wallet inside, two work boots, a faded orange vest with Daniel's company logo on it, a t-shirt, and two socks. Both the jeans and the socks were inside out like they'd been pulled off hastily. The car seemed clean, but according to the report, there had been three or more big rains in the area since Daniel's disappearance. In this case, big rain probably meant a monsoon, so that tracks. If they were monsoons, they're lucky the evidence didn't get washed away. Inside the car was a work helmet filled with water, probably from the rain, and a lot of water damage. They also found his work laptop and some documents, his keys, his phone, a case of unopened water, clothes, a basketball, and other stuff that wasn't itemized. The scene was processed by the crime scene manager for Buckeye PD. So even if they didn't think it was a crime, they still collected everything like it was evidence. This included trying to lift fingerprints and taking DNA swabs. Buckeye PD officers and Maricopa County Sheriff's officers searched around the car on foot and with a drone, but they found nothing but a mountain lion, and she didn't appear to have anything to do with Daniel, from what they could tell. The car was towed to the Buckeye PD evidence lot and examined. The airbag log cataloged the last five seconds of the vehicle activity before the airbags were deployed. The car was going a max of 33 miles per hour right before the impact. Interestingly, the ignition was cycled 44 times after the crash, but at least one of those times was from the officer who collected the airbag data. The car was turned over to David Robinson, who turned it over to a private investigation firm headed by P.I. Jeff McGrath. McGrath noticed that the odometer was 11 miles higher than the odometer reading at the time of the crash. The debate over this car divides opinions on this case, 
So let's get into theories, shall we? I'm going to start with the foul play theory because I think it has less merit. I recognize that I'm in the minority, but oh well. This theory really hinges on the beliefs of Jeff McGrath. The first thing I'm going to say is that I don't doubt his experience in the field of accident reconstruction. I'm well aware of his past with the Avondale police. In fact, I'm sure he's an expert in his field. But this particular case has variables that don't get talked about a lot. First, let's talk about his statements. There's a really good article in my sources that covers this in depth by a reporter named Joseph Darius Jafari. I apologize if I pronounce that wrong. It's called, Months After He Was Reported Missing, Police Haven't Acknowledged the Suspicious Circumstances Surrounding His Disappearance. And it really covers all the reasons why McGrath feels the accident is staged. The article is behind a paywall, but the subscription is only a dollar and it supports local journalism. But I'll cover the key points. First, let's discuss the damage to the car. McGrath felt like the damage to the car was wrong. He said that the windows all should have blown out in a rollover, not just the windshield. He also said there was a crunch to the side of the Jeep that indicated a collision, not a rollover, and that there were traces of red paint on the car. Lastly, he said there was no damage on the roof of the car to indicate that it had rolled. Before we continue, there's the obvious inaccuracy. Remember that passage I quoted from the report? There was also substantial damage to the lower front end and damage to the top of the windshield and roof. I think this is an understandable error, and it has to do with how he was examining the scene. But more on that after we discuss all of his theories. McGrath also felt like the path the vehicle took was impossible because there was no sign of crushed vegetation. He felt like the 11 miles on the odometer and the 44 ignition cycles were suspicious as well. Lastly, McGrath tried to recreate the speed at which the vehicle entered the ravine with an ATV, and he couldn't. Thus, he doesn't think it was possible that the car could have been going that fast as it entered the ravine. Detective Biffin contacted McGrath after he first spoke to reporters to discuss any evidence he had. During this conversation, Biffin said he believed that the vehicle went into the ravine, impacted hard at the bottom, with forward and lateral momentum, causing the vehicle to tip up hard on the hood and windshield as it rolled over onto the side where it came to rest. During this conversation, McGrath said this was possible, and that he'd only used photos to come up with his opinion on the scene. In the same conversation, McGrath also agreed that the extra miles on the odometer could have come from two mundane sources, the wheel spinning while the car was on its side with the engine engaged, or while it was being towed. Now, here's my issue with the foul play theory. McGrath told the media just over a year ago, and I quote, That could not have happened with the physics we work with here on Earth. There is no way the car flipped over. Yet, in September of 2021, according to a police report, he agreed with the police detective that it was, in fact, possible. He also admitted that he hadn't examined the scene in situ, only in photographs. 
And a lot can be missed when you're looking at photographs because you're only looking at whatever the photographer thought was important. The photographer is probably not an expert on crash reconstruction and doesn't know that you need clear images of specific things. As for the crunch on the side of the car, we have no proof of when that happened. It could be completely unrelated to his disappearance. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm not a fan of conspiracy theories. But I think that we shouldn't jump to foul play with no proof. But that brings me squarely to the other theory, that Daniel died in the desert by misadventure. That's usually it, where the theory ends. But I've been living with this case for two weeks, so I'll let you know my personal theory. Now, it's possible that Daniel just decided to explore the desert that day, crashed, and died. Possible, but given his behavior, unlikely. It's very likely that Daniel was experiencing the onset of some sort of mental illness. By mental illness, I don't mean suicidal ideation. It's highly unlikely to me that Daniel was feeling suicidal. While a couple of friends said he seemed a little down or depressed, everyone who knew him said he didn't seem like he was struggling in that way. But as someone who has also struggled with my mental health, I know there are other ways that your mental state can put you in danger. Something that could have contributed to this was marijuana. Now, I don't care if you use weed, but it's really not recommended if you have untreated mental health problems. It could have been a contributing factor. Perhaps that little voice in his head, the one that tells you that it's probably not a good idea to explore the desert alone, without telling your friends or family what you're doing, perhaps it was just a little harder to listen to that day. It could just be that his impulse control wasn't up to par. I believe that Daniel got lost in the desert. If you don't know how to navigate, it's so easy to get lost. His mileage backs up the fact that he was just driving around. According to information in his vehicle, he drove for about 17.4 miles and stopped for some time. He then drove 23.6 miles and presumably crashed. Daniel had a case of water in his car, but it doesn't appear as if he drank it. That's not unusual, really. People often try to hoard their water in the desert, but that's a terrible idea. If you're lost in the desert and you have water, drink it. After Daniel crashed, I think he kept turning the car on to use the air conditioning. I know I've done that when I've been stuck in the car on hot days. Turn the AC on till it's bearable, then turn it off till you can't stand it. The only problem is that it drains your gas and your car battery. That's probably why the battery died. Left in a hot car, rationing his water, Daniel would have quickly gotten heat exhaustion, then heat stroke. Heat stroke is nasty. When your core body temp reaches 104 degrees Fahrenheit, you'll stop sweating, you'll have nausea and vomiting, and your head pounds like a team of Clydesdales are stomping through your skull. And you can start experiencing delirium. This might explain why Daniel's clothes were found strewn around the car. He might have thought it would help him cool off. As a result of this, I don't think Daniel could have gotten far from the car. He was mostly naked, 
shoeless, sockless, and walking on desert sand that probably scorched his feet. Unless he got immediate help, Daniel probably wouldn't survive. If Daniel did pass away, his body wouldn't stay in that area for long. There are mountain lions, coyotes, foxes, bobcats, and two different kinds of vultures in that area of the desert. This means his remains could be anywhere in their ranges. Daniel could be anywhere. And that's why his family needs more support in looking for him. Not just volunteers, either. The Sonoran Desert is a large area that covers more than one jurisdiction. And I feel that the Sheriff's Department and various park services should be doing more to help. If nothing else, his family wants him back and they deserve to be able to put their son to rest. Just because his death might not have been a murder doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve to be found. Daniel's father has literally moved out to Arizona to find his son and searches as often as he can. I might not believe in the same theory as his family or their investigator, but I share their desire that their son should be brought home to them. If you know anything about this case, contact the Buckeye Police Department at 623-349-6411. Or, if you want to volunteer to help search for Daniel, his father's website is helpfinddaniel.com. Well, that was a sad case. I really want Daniel to be found. Hey, guess what? You can support me and my really cute dog on Patreon at patreon.com slash a memory of malice. If you want to see case photos or pics of said really cute dog, follow me on Instagram at amom underscore podcast. If you want to follow me on Facebook, Honestly, I have no idea how to use the platform, but I'm on it. Follow me at a memory of malice dash a true crime podcast. There's also a Tumblr where so far my only followers are porn bots at a memory of malice. I was also on the bird app, but the great twit ruined it. So what's the point? Till next time, stay safe and stay hydrated. And for the love of the gods, stay out of the desert. <laughs>